So we continue our series on Isaiah today. Um, so far, we started on the new year talking about sin, which is a, a joyful way of starting the new year, isn't it? The problem. Last week, Kara spoke to us about the calling and qualification of Isaiah. Now we start to move towards God's solution. What God is going to do, what God has done, and indeed what God is doing in our midst. But before we get there, let me tell you about my week. On Wednesday, I had an evening off, which is very rare. And so I went to the cinema. I saw Roger on the bus. Um, Roger was very disappointed that I wasn't going to see 19, uh, 1917, the, the World War One epic. And if I'm honest, after having seen Star Wars, the rise of Star Wars, Skywalker, I was disappointed that I didn't go and see 1917. <laughs> Star Wars films have become a bit of a cultural marker, haven't they, since the 1970s? They've been... Uh, blockbuster films. And so I felt I needed to go and see it, having seen all the previous ones. It is a good film. It's a brilliant yarn. It's the ninth film in the series, and it's the last film in the series. And although I thoroughly enjoyed that film, I'm very glad they're not making any more. (laughs) It's a story that runs has run its course. Because the film, Star Wars, is basically, although set in space and epic and, and um, full of um, special effects and such like, basically, it's a Western. Basically, it's good guys versus bad guys. It's the under-resourced goodies versus the imperial baddies. It's a bunch of plucky heroes trying their best versus the well-resourced and seemingly infinite army of people who, though, wear armor and have the highest tech, never actually shoot on target. And it's from that story of the evil empire versus the plucky little guys that I then turned to Isaiah. And I found the same story. The empire of Assyria occupying Israel. The undoubtedly good guys whom whom God is on the side of the Israelites, oppressed, struck down, not free, and not knowing how to tackle the problem that is around them. One of the things that frustrates me about the Star Wars series is it's the same story again and again and again. And every time you get to the end of the film, you think, they've won! Only to find out that in the next episode, as the rolling um, narrative goes up the screen, those big yellow writings, you find out they lost in between the films. Somehow they, they resorted to being useless again. And again, I turn back to my Bible, and I find myself reading stories of Scripture, and the Israelites have won, and God God has favor in them again. And then you turn to a new prophecy, and they've let God down. They've turned away from the grace and favor of God, and the Israelites have lost. 
And that's where we find ourselves in Isaiah. God's people again and again have turned back to God. But then they found themselves drifting away. And as they drift away from God, the favor of the Lord leaves them. People come and conquer them. They find themselves under oppression. And here in this passage, we see God's solution that will end all solutions. In passages that you will be familiar with because you have heard them recently at Christmas time. That the ultimate hero that will rise up in this story, in this epic, is Jesus. For unto us a son is given, a child is born. And we're told about his character. That he'll be wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This phrase, wonderful counsellor, uh, many people who write on this believe that it should be, um, that should be two separate phrases. He's not a counsellor who is wonderful. Um, some people say he is wonderful and he is a counsellor. These two separate elements of God's rescue plan in Jesus Christ, the character of it is that he is wonderful and he is a counsellor. What does it mean? But the nature of God's rescue plan for his people and for us involves someone who is wonderful. Obviously, the word wonderful means something that inspires wonder. Not some passive response. You don't see one of the, the great ones of the world and go, yeah, it's all right. The very idea of wonder is you see it and you are overawed by the size of it, the greatness of it, the ambition of it. When was the last time you were before the presence of God in wonder? Overawed. If you managed to go and visit the, the great pyramids of, of Egypt, Will you feel more wonder or less wonder than understand that you're in the presence now of the Almighty God? As we consider the rescue plan of God revealed through Isaiah, may we be a people of wonder. We should turn us to worship. He's also a counsellor. A phrase again that we see repeated in the New Testament in the Gospels that Jesus promises the presence of God with us. A counsellor in this context is one who is alongside us. One who comes to us. One who is with us and praying for us. One who is on our side. Not one who is distant. And indeed, these two phrases are juxtapositioned, and this is why they're important they're separate, because in some ways they are, they, they are intention. That God's plan in, revealed through Isaiah in Jesus Christ 
both involves something that is wonderful, that is beyond comprehension, something that we cannot fully see, but also something that is close and intimate to us. In the person of Jesus, of whom this is prophesying about, we see someone who is both the creator of the universe, the very person who sustains creation, the per- person who slung stars into space, and we also see a baby in a manger. We see a man who calls fishermen to follow him. We see a man who breaks bread and shares wine. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13, it talks of the fear and dread of the Lord. But it also promises that the Lord will come to us in a child. Can you see that beautiful tension? How do you hold that beautiful tension in your life? Has Jesus become familiar to you to the point that you no longer fear? You no longer realized how awesome he is. Or has the awesomeness and dreadfulness of God become so predominant in our faith that we no longer realize that he is counselor and draws near? One of the reasons that faith is a a lifetime of journey is that we have to learn to hold those two things in tension at the same time. The next clause from which Isaiah tells us God's plan will be like is that he will be mighty God, everlasting Father. The one who is to come and rescue us, Jesus Christ, will be everlasting, he will be eternal. He will have no beginning and no end. He will be the God of all creation. He will be God with a capital G. Not God spelt with a little g, for those of you who remember Carolina's sermon from some time back. For those two things are different. It's a standard atheist question. If you've ever debated with, with atheists, and perhaps you're sitting there with someone who has date, whose doubts, they'll say, well, well, which God do you believe in? There's been hundreds of gods. Surely the, the one you believe in now can't just be the right one. Well, yes, because he is the everlasting God. We don't pray to quote the atheist comedian musician in a particular spot to a particular version of a particular God. We do not end, we do not address history's endless parade of gods. We pray to the everlasting God, the creator of all things who is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. For in him he is the God above all gods. And in Isaiah 8 verse 19 we heard Clive Reed saying that there are many of the Israelites who consult the ghosts and the familiar spirits that chirp and mutter. That they consult the gods of the dead, not of the living. That at the time of Isaiah, there was a practice by which you would go to gods with a little g. Maybe statues. Maybe a particular place. But the gods of today, 
the gods with a little g, are much more subtle. The gods that we submit our lives to, which is Zyra warning us, warning us against, are made up of things that do not exist but rule our lives. What is louder in our life? The everlasting God, the mighty Father, or the other way around, the mighty God and everlasting Father, or the voices of all the little gods in our life. Haven't you read uh, Yuval Noah Harari's uh, Sapiens? It's a fantastic book, um, not a Christian book at all, but um, it's, it's a book about the history of the world. And one of his contentions is that the, um, one of the great developments of the human race is we learn to make things up. We learn to be creative. And that continues in our day to day. And it binds us together as a society that we can buy into systems that are completely made up. So he gives some examples. Um, money being one of them. Something that actually doesn't really exist. Something, a system that we all just we all buy into for the common good because it makes the world work. But actually, when you get down to it, it doesn't really exist. He goes at great length to describe uh, Citroen, the, um, the car company, and points out that, again, it doesn't really exist. The board members can change. Yes, there are cars that have their brand on them, but actually, when you try to pin down what the entity is, this company, you suddenly find that it's not really there. And he goes through other examples. The nation-state, the borders that we place, various different things that he speaks about that when you get down to it, aren't real. And yet, so often I see those things the money in our pockets, the companies we work for, the places that we live, have a louder voice in our lives than the everlasting Father, the mighty God. Because these things that we make up become gods with little g's. And although Isaiah warned us against consulting the gods and the familiar spirits that chirp and mutter, and we shouldn't do that, nor should we consult above our everlasting Father those gods with small g's that chirp and mutter, that say you'll run out, so they say that you should be proud of these things above Jesus Christ. These things we can worship. These things can control our lives. These things can become more real to us than the most real thing in the universe, the everlasting Father, the mighty God. And we know that the everlasting Father, the mighty God, is real because he has come to us. Because this everlasting Father, this mighty God, reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ. And finally, because I've been going on about made up things for too long, he is the Prince of Peace. And this is the marker of God coming to us that we know he's peace. 
how outrageous of Isaiah to promise a coming, the Prince of Peace, when God's people were living under oppression and under the sword, yet he will come. When discerning God's call in your life, one of the things to listen to is that voice of peace. Isaiah concludes this passage saying the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord is a phrase, and the bishop unpacks the seal of the Lord, because it's also used in Romans verse 12. Do not lag in zeal, be ardent in spirit, serve the Lord, it says. The bishop of Tensington and my institution described that as simmering, right, simmering, simmering, oh wow, I can't say that word. God's way of acting is he's not like a saucepan that boils over, nor as a saucepan that is stagnant, but rather a saucepan that simmers. Sometimes we can rush into wanting God to act now, to act in incredible ways. But when it says the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this, it speaks of the action of God being continuous, being slower than perhaps we would want, but always acting. And so may we be like that, acting in God's time, not our own. Romans 12, 9 says this, and perhaps this is the way we respond to God revealed in Jesus Christ. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and extend hospitality to strangers. All of which reflects our belief and trust in God, who is wonderful counsellor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, revealed to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.